Good morning again, everyone. Sometimes uh, you get a little scatterbrained and you forget to do things, and I forgot another announcement. I didn't remember it until I walked right past them, but today Dave and Don celebrate 40 years of marriage, so congratulations. Always a good thing to celebrate, and you made it. You were so worried last week you couldn't make it here, but you did, and it was good. Uh, glad to see so many of you this morning. It is cold. It's going to be a very cold week, so hopefully you stay warm, bundled up a little bit. Um, but I'm glad to see you here. I hope that your week has been good. And you know, as we come into another month, of the month of February, uh, my mind kind of goes back to Christmas today. You know, thinking about, are you still using things that you got for Christmas? You know, sometimes the message from a pastor is always, what have you returned already? Because then it just illustrates the point of being grateful and being appreciative. But, you know, have you ever got something that you just love, that you use all the time, that you can't put down? You know, normally I like to think of myself as a good gift giver, except for this last year when I got a mug that went unappreciated. But, you know, it was hilarious in my eyes, and I still find it very funny. But, you know, we, we have things like that in our life that, that we hold on to that has sentimental value. You know, I have things that I hold near and dear to my heart, things that were given by the kids or by Elaine that I just cherish. And, you know, when you think about that, um, they mean a lot to you. And we have different items, we have different people in our life that mean a lot to us, that we hold near and dear to ourselves. You know, if I've got grandparents that lived through the Great Depression and now are kind of hoarders, where they just keep everything that they have because they grew up with so little, and then you contrast that to us, where we have things in our house where we don't even know what it belongs to or where it goes to anymore. You know, where we probably throw out more things in a day than they were able to acquire in a week. It just kind of shows that difference. And as I was preparing for this message, it got me thinking. You know, with all the things that we have around us, if we could, if we could narrow it down... In our life, what would you say is the most important thing that you hold dear? That you would not want to give up, no matter what? And being in church, the Sunday school answer of Jesus probably fits in there, right? But think a little bit harder. What's actually lived out? What do you value in your life? I mean, it could be an object, Something expensive that you've saved up for a long time to get. Or something that was handed down in your family and it has sentimental value. You know, in that area for me, I'd probably say it would be my truck. Because it was expensive. And it was a birthday, Christmas, anniversary, birthday, Christmas, anniversary gift. It was, it was the last big thing that Elaine agreed, agreed to. And it has that sentimental value to me that I wouldn't sell it, I wouldn't trade it in no matter how long I've had it. It could be a person, a spouse, a child, sibling, parent, relative, coworker, friend, 
that you just, you love having them in your life and you don't want them to be out of your life. Could be a, a form of status or position. You know, you work your life to attain a job title, prestige, things in the community. It could be your own life that you value. You know, we say Jesus is the most important thing, but are we ready to lay our life down for him? And again, as I've said before, it's easy to say yes in this setting, when there's not a gun to your head, where there's not a persecution going on right now, to where we can freely meet. But how would you react if you were told that you had to give up these things, that these things were going to be taken from you? What would your response be? Because yes, the Sunday school answer of Jesus is the right answer. And Jesus calls us to be singularly minded as disciples. Not to be double-minded, as James says, tossed to and fro like the waves in the sea. But singularly focused on him in our life. Matthew says, seek first his kingdom and then all of these other things will be added to you as well. The importance of following God. And, you know, when we think about all of these other things that we might hold dear in our life, these shiny distractions, they can cause us to be double-minded. They can create idols in our life, things that we are holding up above God. And we need to frequently check our hearts with these things. You know, what, what is it that could be placed above Jesus in your life? You know your heart. But if it's a question that maybe you struggle with or you're sitting here thinking, of course it's Jesus, I suggest asking another person. Kids are always honest. They know what you value. If others see you, would they say that you value Jesus the most in your life? It's kind of a hard question to ponder. How are we living that out? Today we're going to be reading about the rich young ruler, as he is known in Luke 18. And he has similar struggles in terms of possessions, things that get in the way from him following Jesus. It's a very important lesson, I think, for all of us today. So if you have your Bibles, join me in Luke 18, and I'm going to begin in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, who, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. 
And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more or many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Father, as we dive deeper into your word, I just pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to hear your truth. Lord, that you would convict our our spirits of the things that we are holding on to too tightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so there are a lot of great teaching points within this passage, too many to really cover today. So I know I'm not going to get to all of them. It's already going to be a long message, plus communion on top of that. So just kind of buckle in, get comfy, and and strap in. We're going for a ride today. But we're going to focus on some of these higher points. And if you have time, dive in deeper a little bit on your own this week. Um, But the first thing that we're going to look at today is this continuation of the question and answer of how does someone get to heaven? You know, again, we want to hold in to our minds the, the last couple messages dealing with the Pharisee and the tax collector and the childlike faith from last week and how Jesus was stressing this concept of humility. And even as I say that, we want to understand it's not humility for the sake of humility and just checking something off of the list, but we have to understand the context of humility and what it means before a holy God who requires perfection, acknowledging who he is and who we are as sinners. Um, So it's very important for us to understand that. And as we see the opening here, we see this ruler who comes to Jesus and asks him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now again, remembering the lesson of the Pharisee and the tax collector with humility, understanding that salvation is by grace, it is not by works. So when we look at this question, we can automatically see right away his error. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's coming with a works-based mentality, so it seems. Now, why is he coming to Jesus in the first place? Jesus is seen as a prophet. He's seen as a, a great teacher. He is seen as somebody that's sent from God, similar to a rabbi. And rabbis, they would be the teachers of the law. They would be in the local synagogues. They would be helping guide people, just like pastors, just like priests, to, to follow the ways of God, how to get to heaven. You know, usually it would uh, involve keeping the law. It would involve trusting in his promises, understanding the Torah, and, and all these types of things. And if you recall in a couple messages ago, probably a few months ago, um, we talked about how sometimes Rabbis would have different interpretations on different things, such as what, it, what constitutes work on the Sabbath. So maybe this guy is going to Jesus to see what his interpretation on how to attain eternal life is. Uh, maybe his request is genuine. Maybe he truly wants to know more knowledge in this area. Maybe. But I think it's a little self-serving, as, we'll, as we're going to see. And he enters the scene saying, Good teacher. Now, how do you take that form of address? How do you, what does it set off in your mind? Because there's differing thoughts about this opening exchange and how to truly understand it. 
You know, to me, it kind of reads like a text message where you can't necessarily understand if someone's being serious or sarcastic. You know, is he saying good teacher because he's referring to Jesus and his mighty deeds and his great teaching and that he's a great man? Or is he saying good teacher trying to butter him up a little bit as a form of flattery? Like, hey, hey, buddy, how you doing over there? Hey, tell me how to get eternal life. And, you know, since we're so chummy chummy here, maybe you can relax some of these requirements that are needed so I can get in. Again, going back to this works-based thing, you know. So we see this address um, and the following question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then we see Jesus' response. And we could spend a lot of time unpacking this one, but just a few of the high notes here. First, let's just look at this first sentence. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So immediately, Jesus addresses how the man refers to him. Why do you call me good? And this brings out some difficulties for our interpretation, I think. You know, why does Jesus say this? Because the way it reads, it presents difficulties, doesn't it? I likened it to like when I was in my young 20s, and I was coaching in high school, and I was substitute teaching. I would go into the school, and the, the kids would say, hey, Mr. Barman. I'd stop, I'm like, who are you calling mister? I am not that old, you know? So it kind of reads with that type of attitude and that kind of feel to it. Again, not understanding the context can put you at a disadvantage here. You know, why would Jesus say that he is not good or accept being called good if he's God? And we have to remember we're on this side of the cross. We have years of study of the Trinity and understanding Jesus as God. The people in front of him would not. So it could bring some confusion for us. But I want to take that type of reading out of our minds right away because of that confusion. Because Jesus isn't saying that he's not good. He's simply addressing the statement of the, of the man here. Okay? He's putting emphasis on that. Another view of what Jesus is saying here is, you know, again, being on this side of the cross, understanding the Trinity, we could see how Jesus could be pointing to himself as being God because he is perfect, because he is good. And it's difficult to know, again, whether Jesus was intending this in this statement. Either way, the man doesn't pick up on that if he was. Um... And then it says, only God is good. Literally, it says, no one good if not alone God. So to, to me, the obvious purpose in what Jesus is then saying is he is taking the standard of goodness back to God by saying that only God is good and that his standard would be infinitely higher than anything that this rich young ruler would imagine. God being good is established throughout Scripture by definition. He gives us the law, which is good. Uh, some of the, the passages in Scripture. Just a moment. Okay. 
So we've got a whole list of the first one on the, tops, on the top there. They all have this same message. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy and love last forever. They're enduring, you know, some version of that with all of those passages there. And then in Psalm 25, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Um, Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Nahum 1, 7, uh, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. Again, so this um, is an establishment that Jesus is saying that God alone is good. You know, he, he takes the person back to that standard. And then he says, you know the commandments. And he lifts off the fifth commandment through the ninth commandment. And these deal primarily with others and how he would be completing the law in that way. He doesn't list off the tenth just quite yet. So we begin to wonder, what is Jesus doing here? You know, he completely skips the first four, which I think would expose the man's guilt right away. Um, but Jesus takes that standard of goodness back to the law to measure this man up. Jesus is using God's standard, which Paul says in Galatians, points out our sin, points out how we fall short, right? Jesus is perfect because he perf perfectly completed the law. It was the standard of holiness that God would use to judge his people. And this man says, I have done these things since my youth. And in my mind, that just brings out a, okay, sure, whatever you say there, buddy. You know, we, we want to scoff at that. It's a curious statement. It's like, really, you've done all of these things since your youth. But notice, Jesus doesn't scoff at him. He doesn't rebuke him. You know, in the Gospel of Mark, it says he has compassion on the man when he hears this. And then he says, one thing you still lack. He lists off the failing that the guy has. And... This would point to the 10th commandment, which deals with the coveting of your neighbor's goods, dealing with possessions, dealing with the hold that those would have on your heart and your mind. So as Jesus is pointing out God's standard, he's also pointing out this area where the man falls short. And he gives the man a solution then. Sell everything, give it to the poor, and you're going to have true riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus gives the man an invitation here. And then we see that he's at a point of decision, a crossroads, so to speak. And there's so much right up to this point that I just want to slow down and I want us to process it a little bit more. Kind of walk through it as we apply it to our lives and maybe put ourselves in, this own, in his situation as well. So again, we have this man who is... Uh, coming and asking about eternal life. In my eyes, he's wanting affirmation that he has done enough good things, that he is a good enough person to get into heaven. Does that sound like a familiar sentiment? Isn't that what our culture and world believes? That I'm good enough. That I can get into heaven because I'm a pretty good person. And they're basing that off of their own morals, off of their own standards, with goalposts that constantly shift to allow what they want to do. 
as being okay. If they think, well, I haven't done any of the big things, I'm still pretty good. My good is outweighing my bad, so to speak. It's an attitude that is pervasive in our society, in our culture. And what it does is it allows us to be hardened to the fact and the ugliness or the fact that sin is so ugly and the impact that it has in our lives and the judgment that it requires. Because if we think that we're pretty good, we're not really viewing sin in its correct lens. It's an easy belief. It's easy to believe that way because it's my own standard. And I can make it up as I go along. I can adjust it here and there. But it's not the truth. And Jesus stresses this in his response. He draws out how one's actions and morals are not the standard for goodness, but rather it is God alone and his standards. God alone is good. And we cannot belittle that point. We cannot be too soft on that point. Only God is good. The standard that he put forth is the law. And the law must be done perfectly in order for you to be considered righteous. If you fail to complete the law in one area, one time you have sinned. You have transgressed against a holy God. You have gone against the whole standard that is set by God and failed. And what does the word tell us? The wages of that sin is death in Romans 6.23. Romans 3.23, all have fallen short and sinned. So all people are deserving of that judgment of death from a holy and righteous God. That is our basis. That is our starting point. That is what is blinded by those that think I'm good enough and what they can't see, but what they must see. And Jesus points out to this man that he still lacks one thing, meaning in everything that he has done, he still hasn't attained perfection. And perfection was required for you to get to heaven, but you are lacking, so you have failed. This type of understanding would continue to fly in the face of the Jewish leaders, of the teachers who are trying to earn their way into heaven. It would disappoint this man for sure. But this would also be a teaching for the disciples, for those that are following Jesus. Because the good news, the gospel message, isn't just for those that are unsaved. It's also for the saved. It continues to look, um, this, this look at perfection, it continues to drive home this point over the last couple weeks, how salvation is by grace alone, how it is not by works. It is the work of God for man, not man's work for himself. And then Jesus tells them, this guy, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now this isn't a universal command. This is not something that you have to do if you become a disciple. Money is not forbidden as a disciple. But it was a very individualistic thing that would shatter this man's idol, so to speak. It would shatter his world to understand his brokenness. This is a conviction of the heart. And you can see that it impacts this guy. You know, he is sad. And he is at this crossroad. Do I give up everything that I have to follow this man who says he will take me to eternal life? 
Or do I continue to trust in what has made me secure all my life? You know, Jesus, he invites the man to follow him. He, he reveals where he is lacking. He is offering him grace. The gospel message needs to be said in a way that points out our sin and puts it right in front of you to that point of decision. But then it also gives you the way out in terms of Jesus. It gives you that alternative. Sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. It's a concept that follows throughout all of Scripture. It is the good news. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says this, I have said before you today, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. <clears throat> Sorry. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land of the Lord or the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. So this is a, a portion of scripture where the Israelites are about to go into the promised land, and Jesus gives them that choice right there, between life and death. And he gives them the answer, choose life. It's the same type of thing that is happening right here with this man. Jesus sees this man's reaction. He knows the choice that he's going to make. In the other Gospels, it records the man walking away sadly. He leaves sad that he couldn't attain eternal life, even though Jesus just told him how to attain eternal life. Here in Luke, it's still uncertain if he is still there. And he comments on how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter heaven because they're trusting in their riches. You know, riches oftentimes can bring this sense of false security that we can take care of ourselves. It helps us to look sideways and compare ourselves with others rather than look to the Lord for dependence and provision, thinking that we can do everything on our own. It brings in this works-based mentality that is so poisonous. But, you know, it doesn't just have to be riches for us. Anything that we are trusting in, anything that we are finding security in in this life is taking the place of Jesus. And this draws out the natural response for all those that hear. Who then can be saved? And again, Jesus points back to God, reiterating the, the teaching to not trust in yourself and trusting in your own means to try and get into heaven because it's impossible. Rather, you need to depend on God. No one can gain eternal life by their good works or by being a good person. 
You know, and when we think of the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, it confronts a person face to face with sin. For this man, his heart was ruled by riches. In our own individual hearts, it could be something else. You know, in the initial conversion you or evangelism, you usually use the, the simple things like telling a lie or stealing something to draw out the sinful attitudes or behaviors. But this confrontation is important because it puts forward to the person that they are breaking the standards that are set by God. It's important because it allows them to admit their sinful behavior to where they can humble themselves to realize what they have done against a holy and righteous God. Realizing that they have not met his standard, that they have not attained perfection, that they have not completed the law, and that they, in fact, are a sinner deserving of judgment. Now, as I said, Jesus offers this man a way out to repent from this sin and then to come and follow him. It's a similar call throughout the generations that does not change. It's individual as it is for each one of us. And when we think back to the opening, and I ask the question of what it is that you hold dear in your life, it's just a small example. You know, I don't pretend to know who is saved or who is not. I tend to take your words and your confessions at face value. If you say that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, I believe you, and I encourage you from that point. But you know, as you put yourself in a similar situation today as this young man, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, admit your sin. Repent from it, realizing that you're not perfect, that you have failed. And then you believe that he died for your sins and was raised on the third day in order to bring eternal life. If you are a believer, confess that you, and that you confess that you are saved, the question still is pertinent for you. It still matters. Is what you're holding on to in this life more valuable than Jesus? Is that thing taking your focus off of him? Do you understand Jesus' grace enough to let it go, even if it's your own life? My prayer for you today is to not walk away from Jesus when he is offering you an invitation to be a disciple or to grow closer to him by casting off these idols that are in our lives. Do not hold on to the things of this world because they will fade. In my life, I've had to reassess several times how things have become idols. And most recently, God has been teaching me and dealing with me and my stubbornness in a few areas. I shared in greater detail than I will share today with youth group on Wednesday. But God has been showing me, and I know in my heart, that I hold on to Elaine too tightly. I know that I idolized her. 
And we can easily brush it off by saying, well, you're just being a good husband and you loved her deeply. That's true. But at the same time, I know my own heart. I know that I loved her at times more than Jesus. And that's not right, even for a husband and wife. And it's been hard to come to those realizations, to be convicted and confronted with that type of teaching. As I'm grieving, I compare the two loves. Now, I understand the differences between my wife and my Savior, but as I'm walking through the process and still learning, it hurts every day that she is gone. Most days, you can feel your heart physically tearing. You have noiseless screams as you cry out to God for strength just to get through. But then I ask myself, have I ever loved God with that same passion? To where I am in agony for his will, for his kingdom, for his mission, for the lost people around me. To where I feel his pain that people are going to be separated from him eternally. Or is that just some ideal that's spouted on Sundays? Is it something that I value and live in my life that people can see? Because they can see my love for my wife, but can they see my love for Jesus? And when I put this into an application for myself, I too am at a similar crossroad. I'm faced with a decision. Do I walk away from his mission in sadness, holding on tightly to what I don't want to give up? Do I stay in a constant state of grieving, keeping my focus on her? Or do I repent and come and follow him? Now, obviously, I know that she is in heaven, that she is rejoicing and praising God. I know that I will be with her one day, and it'll be a sweet reunion. I mean, I know the truth. I know the Sunday school answers. I know the scripture. I know the platitudes and the pleasantries. But when we idolize things, people, our own lives, when we're wanting to hang on to the things of this world, it distorts and blinds us from the truth that God has set before us. Truth that needs to be lived out in a broken world by his church. As Christians, we need to constantly assess idolatry in our lives. This man, he could give everything to the poor and he could go and follow Jesus, but then he can just go make more and it would defeat the purpose. Jesus is addressing the heart issue of this man to not hold anything above himself, to not be double-minded, but to be focused on God solely. And we desperately need that type of a heart. We desperately need the Spirit to convict us in our lives of those idols that we're holding on to, that we're clinging to, because they make us double-minded. They distract us from the mission. They distract us from what we need to be doing. So now we, too, are at a crossroads, 
And you could be asking yourself, why? Why should I listen to what Jesus is telling me? Why shouldn't I stew? Why shouldn't I be angry? Why shouldn't I continue to grieve in the way that I am? It's because he is the answer. He is the one that brings life. We put our hope and trust in his death and resurrection. That he has paid the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The price that we needed to pay for our transgressions, for our failings, for our coming up short. It is by his blood that we are saved and justified, being made right in the sight of God. It is in him that we trust. So we follow him to the ends of the earth. We follow him to our death, ready to do whatever he says for the sake of the kingdom. And we see Peter's question here at the end. And you know, because this is an individual example to this rich young ruler, Peter and the others begin to think about what they've given up for Jesus and whether or not they've attained eternal life. I don't think that this is being asked in a selfish way here. Um because there's not much, he's not trying to gain something, but rather he just wants assurances of the promises that Jesus has already given. And Jesus says, you know, you're gonna be richly blessed in this life and the life to come. And again, the definition of blessing needs to be understood in terms of it's not material possessions as blessings, but you know, the fruits of the spirit, having everything that you, that you need to be provided. You look at Acts 2, you look at Acts 4 and how the community of the church responded to one another. They shared everything in common so that none did without. They provided, they took care of each other. They were a community of believers. We need to be single-minded towards God when it comes to this life, not focused on the other things that are around us. If you are not a believer this morning, do not walk away from Jesus today. His invitation is open to all, telling you that you have sinned against a holy God and that you will be judged, and that judgment will bring death, eternal separation from God. But he offers reconciliation. He brings life through what he did on the cross. If you are a believer this morning, do some soul searching. Let go of what you're holding on to too tightly and come and follow him. There are many areas in our life that we can look to. And as disciples, we need to be practicing obedience to his word, to his standard. Not to what the world tells us is good, not to our own standards of goodness. Not just giving our faith lip service. For the most part, I believe that as believers, we know right and wrong but we still struggle because we have not died completely to our sin. We still entertain it. And my prayer for us this week is to throw off what is hindering us to come and follow him. Do what he asks and commands for the sake of the kingdom because that is what is eternal. That is what will last. The things of this earth 
will fade. So we shouldn't hold on to it too tightly. Today we're going to be celebrating communion. But before we do that, I want us to spend some time in reflection of what Jesus did for us. Reflection of our sin, of our idols, and why Jesus needed to come to make that payment. So as we close and shift to this, I will ask the men to go to the back, but I want us to spend some time in quiet prayer, and after a time, I will close that. Father, we come before you humbly this morning, acknowledging that we are sinners. Lord, your word says that you discipline those that you love, but your convictions are not always easy because many of us struggle with a fear of failure and we hate failing. But Lord, your conviction is so needed because many times we just become ignorant of the things that we do. We become arrogant in our foolish pride. And we find means of escape with the idols in our life, or rather than means of restoration in your forgiveness and love. Father, as believers, we come before you fully knowing that it is only you. It is by your grace, it is by your sacrifice that we are saved. And Lord, there are not enough words to describe our grateful hearts. But Lord, I pray that we can live lives fully devoted to you. not distracted by the things of this world, but rather looking at advancing your kingdom, sharing the good news with those that are around us, testifying to your goodness, to your truth. Lord, I thank you I thank you for the cross, as horrible as it was, and the agony that he went through. The fact that he did it for us, as unworthy as we are, just shows the depth of your love that we cannot fully explain. Father, we praise you today 
for who you are as God, for being holy, for being righteous, for being good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here at Harvest, we celebrate an open communion that means simply that if you are a professed believer in Jesus, we invite you to share at the Lord's table uh, with us. Uh, we do have some the roles that you can take or the single individual units if you wish as well. Um, for the, the bread, we just ask that you hold it until everybody's served and then we'll, we'll eat the bread together. Uh, ask the Menda to come forward and I'll read part of 1 Corinthians 11. Beginning in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As we celebrate communion today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you freely gave up your body for us as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice, which could only be done by you. We are humbled by the love that you have shown. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's eat the bread together. Paul continues in chapter 11. You guys can come forward. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, understanding the law of sacrifices, understanding what needed to take place to cover our sins, there's so many rituals, so many things that had to take place. But Lord, when we think about the new covenant, we think about Jesus' blood, how it doesn't just cover, but it washes away. Lord, that the truth shall set us free from this burden of sin. And when we are free, Lord, it is so amazing. We don't hold that burden, we don't hold that yoke. Thank you. Lord, we celebrate today 
what Jesus poured out for us. We proclaim in one voice that he is Lord until he comes again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you get the, the cups, go ahead and, and drink. Ready? Invite the worship team up to, to close us in song.